0: The Trinity Hymn Book 271, familiar hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. In the midst of this hymn, we ask the question as why we were invited as guests to this wonderful feast of God's grace when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. It's amazing that God would set His love upon us. 271. Thank you. our consecutive readings in the New Testament this morning, we come to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. The first verse of this chapter gives us the setting in which everything else that Christ has to say is set in. We read there in verse 1, It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, They were watching him closely, trying to find a reason in which they could make an accusation against him. And what follows is our Lord addresses the proud. He then addresses the, he starts with the religious and then the proud and then the wealthy and then the presuming. So he addresses these four groups of people, the religious, the proud, the wealthy, and the presuming ones. Follow as we read together this chapter. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And He said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could not make a reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest (coughs) when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that the one who has invited you comes, invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. (coughs) Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to one who invited him When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or the rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slaves to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slaves came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to the slaves, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And the slaves said, Master, what do you... C- what you commanded has been done, and still there is no room. There, there, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, "Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner." So now, having addressed those various groups of people, he now ends this discourse with reminding us what the cost of true discipleship is, what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the large crowd were going along with Him, and He turned aside and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, and hate his own father and mother, wife, and children, And brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, and is not able to finish all who observe it begins to ridicule him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 or else While the other is still far away, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be My disciples who does not give up all of His possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt becomes tasteless, with what will it it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil... Or for the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, may God bless the reading of his word. Let us again seek our God together in prayer. And this morning we especially want to remember uh, Tom Kapir, who labors in the Far East for many years, uh, but has been asked to leave the country of China, and is now in uh, Thailand and um, is meeting with a group of men, training them for the ministry. So we want to pray for him. And then also we want to continue to pray for Pastor Jeff Smith, who's in Pakistan, uh, ministering for another week or two. And pray that God would bless and watch over him as well. Let us pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we give you thanks for the Word of God and even the reminder this morning of the Kingdom of God and the invitation that goes out, to the highways and byways. And Father, we pray that we might be diligent in seeing that that Gospel goes, goes out to the ends of the earth so that many may hear the truth of the Gospel and upon hearing that truth may turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ to be their only Savior. And Father, we thank you for men who are willing to go out and labor to that end in faraway places. And we pray that you would bless their ministries. We pray that you would bless Pastor Smith as he works there in Pakistan for another couple weeks. Watch over him. We pray for his safety. Father, we pray that you would use him even as he instructs other pastors there in Pakistan. May his time there be beneficial not only for those men, but also for those congregations in which they labor and preach the Word. Father, we just pray that you would also be with Kam Kapir. We thank you for the heart that you've given him for the Far East. And pray that as he begins this six-week period of instruction, to pastors, that you would watch over him. We pray for those pastors who will be coming from other countries, that, Father, you might keep them safe. And even as they return to those countries that are more hostile towards the things of God, that you would give them opportunity to continue to work for the advancement of your kingdom in those various places. And then, Father, we think of right here at home, and we would pray that you would use us and those around us who know you for the good and the advancement of your kingdom, even in Lenawee County and the surrounding areas. But, Father, as we think of our own little territory, our own little county, Father, we would also pray for our nation. And, Father, we know that there are mothers and fathers that are mourning the death of, of little ones because of the horrendous taking of life this week. There, there are families that are missing mother and and fathers and and a father and a grandmother's and grand grandfather and father. Again, we're reminded of how little we take human life and pray that you would forgive us. But Father, in the midst of all the craziness in the midst of a world that seems to be turned upside down that we would not lose hope. We have a glorious gospel that we can share with others. It's the only hope that we see in this day and age. Father, we pray that you might be pleased to awaken many to their need of a Savior. Awaken us to the fact that there is a true and living God. Awaken us as a nation to the reality that our sin and our wickedness only separates us from this true and living God. And that, Father, men would see that there is a way to be reconciled to Him, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ, and Christ alone. And we would pray that many eyes would be opened and many ears would be open, and hearts that are of stone would be turned to flesh and that we would see a time of, of real conversions within our own area and even within our nation give us leaders that are more concerned about pleasing you than pleasing themselves give us leaders that have a greater fear of god than they have of man Father, we pray that You would have mercy upon us, even as a nation. We would pray, Father, as Your Word is opened unto us, that You would come, that You would be a help to Micah. We pray, Father, that the Word of God would have an effect upon each one of us. How we pray for those who are among us who know You not, that even today would be a day of salvation. So we commit this time to You, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, take your Trinity hymn books once again, turning to hymn 28. 28 in the Trinity hymn book. Has Thou Not Known? Speaking about our great God. Has Thou Not Known? Has Thou Not Heard? That firm remains on high. The everlasting throne of him who formed the earth and sky. Him that directs us to the true and living God. Number 28, Trinity Hymn Book. (laughs) Let's stand together as we sing.
1: Good morning. Will you uh, approach the throne in prayer with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that your spirit would help us. Lord Jesus, by what you've done on the cross, through your mighty intercession for us, I pray that you would assist us as we hear your word. I pray that you would lead our hearts to take hold of the horns of the altar, And not let go until we've tasted of your presence among us. I pray that you would fill our minds with the greatness and the glory and the goodness of the God that we come here to worship today. I pray that you give us a sense of holy awe, standing before his throne, being reconciled to you through your son. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we started, or four weeks ago, we started a series through the attributes of God. The first message was intended to sort of give us a taste of where we were headed. And then the last one was to establish that there is a massive, unbreachable, and unbridgeable gulf between God and His creatures. We were setting up that creator-creature distinction. Remember, we went to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, and we saw what Moses asked of God. Moses asked God, Show me your glory. And we saw why that was peculiar, because Moses had already seen so much glory in his life. And we saw that what Moses was really asking was to see God as God sees himself and was to know God as God knows himself. He was asking for his finite mind to comprehend with greater depth the infinite God. We saw God's answer to Moses, that you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back, and I'll proclaim my name before you, and I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And then we saw, as God As Moses met with God on that mountain, he did do that. And the emphasis wasn't really on what Moses saw. The emphasis was on what Moses heard. He heard the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, that name by which God is said to be the the I am that I am. Nothing else can compare to him. He's dependent on nothing to define him. He proclaimed His name Yahweh before Moses. And then He enumerated a list of His attributes and saying, because I'm condescending to you in love, because I'm condescending in covenant faithfulness to My people, you truly can know Me. Look at My steadfast love with which I forgive all of your sins, but make no mistake, I won't clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation, And we saw how that that scene ends with Moses' face in the dust worshiping the God that he'd just come into contact with. So last message was on the incomprehensibility of God. What makes God different from us? And how can we approach this God that we can't comprehend? So turning this week to the first formal attribute We need to look at the first thing that makes God different from us. These are called his incommunicable attributes. These attributes by which he distinguishes himself from any creature or from any created thing. Think about God's love. We can possess a sense of love, can't we? If you're married, I hope you do. We can possess a sense of justice. We live in a culture where we have laws. And people who break those laws are supposed to be brought to justice before the, co- before the courts. So God expects his creatures to take part in some of his attributes in a creaturely way. We possess a sense of love, justice, truth, goodness, all of these things. But then there are, abs- there are attributes that absolutely and completely distinguish the creator from the creature. And it's the first one of those attributes that we turn to today. The attribute of his independence, his absolute total self-existence by which he is all that he is, has all that he has and does all that he does from himself alone. Not dependence on anything outside of himself. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, I think... Uh, This section in Isaiah's prophecy really strikes at the heart of this attribute of God as God is distinguishing himself from the idols that Israel has given themselves to. But I want to start off before we read our text with an illustration. Let's suppose that Kelsey, my wife, asks me to take her paycheck to the bank and to deposit it tomorrow. And to to make it even a little bit more important, let's say that I've been procrastinating about it for two weeks already. So she's very insistent. I need you to take this paycheck to the bank tomorrow and deposit it because we need that money in our account. And let's say, because she's so insistent, that I swear to her, I will do this. Maybe I even make an oath. Alarm bells should be going off in your heads, by the way, that we're not supposed to do that. (laughs) But was what I did in making her an oath saying that, come what may, I will get this done, I promise you, I'm staking my integrity on it, was that a wise thing to do? Think about that for a second in your mind. Is that a wise thing for creatures to do? What if the bank is closed tomorrow? What if I didn't know that the bank would be closed tomorrow because of a deficiency in my knowledge? I'm dependent on things outside of myself for my knowledge. And therefore, I'm dependent on things outside of myself for my ability to keep my word to my wife. Or suppose a snowstorm blows in and something is physically stopping me from keeping this promise. There's a deficiency in my power. There's a deficiency in my ability to keep this promise because there's a barrier that I can't pass. I'm dependent on things outside of myself for my ability and my strength to keep my promise to my wife. Or maybe this is even an even worse uh, example. Maybe I'm lazy. Maybe I have a deficiency in my love where I just don't keep my word. Or maybe I have a heart attack. So there's a deficiency in my ability to sustain my own life. Do you see the problem? My ability as a creature to keep my word to, to my wife or to anyone else is dependent on a whole list of variables that are outside of myself. As, crea- as a creature, I am in every sense a dependent being. I didn't bring myself into existence, my parents under the providence of God, brought me into existence. I didn't cause myself to grow and to take the form that I have now. There was a whole list of variables, including nutrition, including all of the providential aspects in the way that God ordered my life that made that the way it is now. I don't know anything that I know right now from myself. Think about our knowledge. We don't know anything that we know From ourselves, all of our knowledge is received from the outside and therefore it's it's finite and it's dependent. Do you see what I'm getting at here? As creatures, we are dependent in every way on an almost innumerable number of factors. And this is what ultimately distinguishes us. This is the first thing that distinguishes us. From God. This is the first incommunicable attribute because all of those dependencies that we have, God says, I have none of it. And that's what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 40 today, but it's really from the first pages of Scripture. God is not like us. And the idols that we fashion, according to Isaiah chapter 40, are not. The the idols that we fashion in our own image are ultimately different from the true and the living God. Let's read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 20. Starting in verse 9 Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. So this is a salvific context. God is promising to his people that he will save them. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman To set up an idol that will not move. So, like I said after verse 11, notice the salvific context that Isaiah is speaking in. Isaiah is speaking in the context of certain judgment. He's just gotten done in chapter 39 prophesying and foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon is prophesying the horrible and intense judgment on the people of God that will bring them into exile. But now in this prophecy, he's turning a corner. He's turning a corner toward the salvation that is there for God's people in the future. After he brings them out of exile, he's prophesying a new exodus in which God will bring his people not only out of bondage to other nations, but out of spiritual bondage to sin and death and the devil as well. Ultimately, that's all wrapped up in this context in which Isaiah is prophesying. On the heels of certain judgment, this prophecy of Isaiah turns a corner and he looks ahead to a day of salvation by the arm of Yahweh. And this chapter begins with the announcement of salvation. Look at verse 9. Go up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news. And what are are they supposed to say? Behold your God. Verse 10, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock. He will gather. He will carry. This is an announcement of salvation that ultimately is meant to communicate a message about the nature of their God and the nature of false gods. The picture here, like I said, is of a new exodus, the Lord taking his people out of bondage and leading them to the promised land. Well, uh, take a look at verses, at chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 really quickly because we get this, uh, we get this sense even more in those verses. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh will see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he's speaking of the valleys being lifted up and the mountains and the hills being being made low. He's talking about the rough terrain becoming a clear path for the children of Israel to come out of exile and into the presence of God. And like I said... The reason for this promised salvation is that so, like in verse 9, like verse 9 says, behold your God, that God might display his glory amongst the nations once again. So there's a message being communicated about the nature of God. But the problem in this text, the problem underlying this prophecy and the reason that they're going to go into exile to Babylon in the first place is because his people have trusted both in idols and in other nations to save them. So in order to make or so in order that all the nations might behold him in his glory, he begins to make a mockery of the false gods. And that's what Isaiah uh, chapters forty through forty five are called by many theologians. A lot of theologians call Isaiah chapter forty through forty five the trial of the false gods. It's as if Yahweh, the true and living God, is entering the courtroom. And he's going to bring bring charges against all the idols who have claimed to ascend his throne. And not only is he the judge, but he is also acting in this text as the prosecuting attorney. He's going to list a series of questions in which their faultiness as idols and creatures is exposed. But what I want us to see is that the key way that God exists that none of these idols do, the key way that the true God exists that none of his creatures do, is the fact that he is the independent creator of all things, and they are dependent beings in every sense of the word. He is, in verses 12 through 14, He is independent in his attributes. Verse 12, read it with me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? So he's, what he's doing is exalting his own power and wisdom against that of any creature. But he does it in a way that shows that no creature has taught anything to the Lord. Look at verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? That word measured there really means to direct. It's as if you were going to come into the counsel of the Lord and say, No, you should go this way and not go that way. The point here is that God, in his creative work, And God, in His redemptive work for His people, has not learned that wisdom in order to do that uh, from anything outside of Himself. God's knowledge, like all of His other attributes, is underived. God's knowledge, compared against ours, is much different. Go back to that illustration that I gave at the beginning. Our knowledge comes from outside of ourselves, we learn things. This is the God who has never learned anything. No one has measured the spirit of the Lord or directed the spirit of the Lord. No man has showed him his counsel. He didn't consult anyone when he sought to create the earth. He didn't. No one made him understand. No one taught him the path of justice. God's knowledge is not like our knowledge. And none of God's other attributes are like any of our other attributes. That's what this text is saying about God. It's saying that all of who God is flows from himself in an independent way. And as creatures, even apart from our sins, we are needy and dependent on so many factors outside of our control for our existence and our attributes. We, as creatures, act out of necessity. The, the things that we do, we do in, in large part because we have to do them. If I'm going to survive, I have to go out and get food for my family. And we have to go seek shelter. As creatures, we do what we do out of necessity because we have to. But because God is the independent one, he doesn't act like this. He doesn't have his life like this. Uh, I want to read to you a, a portion of the Second London Confession that, that illustrates this, I think, perfectly. And it's, it's really dense, but, but pay attention to the words here. Second London Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 2. God, having all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto Himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon Him. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, Whatsoever he pleases. Listen to that. All life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. What does that sound like? That sounds like verses 13 and 14 where he doesn't learn anything from something outside of himself. He possesses it because he himself is the I am. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? These are all things that he has from himself. That's what it means for him to be independent. And that's what it means for him to be self-existent as well. That these are all synonymous terms when we come to this attribute. You could speak of his independence or you could speak of his self-existence, or you could speak, as older theologians have, of his aseity. Ase simply means, as Latin, for from himself. All that he has and all that he is is from himself, not derived from any creature. This means that he doesn't receive anything from the creature's hand. And this was a mistake that Israel was constantly making, too. They thought actually, that their God was like the idols. They thought that God benefited from their sacrifices and worship. This is why they so often, they went off after idols, but they thought, you know what, as long as we're providing sacrifices, we'll be fine, because that'll satiate God. That'll make him happy. We'll sort of pay him off, we'll give him what he needs, and that'll be good enough. But on the contrary, God says something completely the opposite to them. In this text, look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are all counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations are a drop from the bu- drop from a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. They're like fine dust. The nations do not offer him anything. If you gathered all of the nations of the earth from coastland to coastland and every continent of this world, they would not be able to offer God anything that he doesn't have in and of himself. Verse 16, if you were to chop down all the forests of Lebanon, which is a massive forest in that part of the world, and use all of the wood to burn sacrifices on, and you were to gather up, hunt, and kill all of those animals in that same forest, none of that would actually be enough to serve him if you could actually do that. And it's because he doesn't need anything from us. He manifests his glory To us, we give him no glory intrinsically. Even if our hands could serve him, there wouldn't be enough wood in all the forests of Lebanon or enough beasts in it to slaughter. So, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is making the point here that he's the self existent one, he's the self glorious one, not receiving any glory from the creature. He's the self-sufficient one, not needing the creature's sacrifices to survive or thrive like their idols did. And he is the self-blessed one. God doesn't even need you to be happy. Did you know that? God doesn't even need us to be happy. Pastor Calvin was telling me one time that he heard someone start a sermon, I think he said in Genesis, with, you know the first thing that Scripture shows us about God is? That he was lonely. I can't think of anything more foreign to Scripture than that idea. As if God created because He needed something from the creature. God is the self-blessed One. He's eternally happy in and of Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mutually delighting in one another to the fullest without the need of any creature. That's who our God is. He didn't create us because He needs us. And He didn't save us because He needs us either. So, how does this affect us as his people? Because he has, but the fact of the matter is he has created. So how do you account for that? And he has saved us and he has redeemed us in Christ. So how do you account for all these things? Well, first of all, this should give us a God-centered view of all of creation and all, and all of history. It decenters us and it puts God on the throne. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 31. And we're going to be jumping around a lot in this series through the whole whole of Scripture. But uh, it's kind of of necessity because the way that Scripture speaks to us about God and the way God has revealed himself in the Scriptures, God hasn't given us a systematic theology textbook that just lists things about him. What he's done is he's acted in history. He's acted to create and save and redeem and he's manifested his glory. And then those actions have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, been recorded in the scriptures. So we have to plumb all of scripture together if we're going to see this God for who he is. But what Romans chapter 11, uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 31, actually we can do... uh, Actually, it's verse 36, but we're going to read verses uh, 33 through 36. This is the Apostle Paul speaking about how God has used the nation of Israel in the rejection of Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and how he's made one new olive tree out of a people that were were formerly, formerly separated. Look at verse 33. Paul is exulting in who God is. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 that we just came from. Who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him, through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what does this doctrine of God's independence, aseity, which leads to his sovereignty do? Ultimately, it brings him glory through everything that he does in the history of mankind. Every action that is taken in history was decreed by the counsel of this living God. And all things that happen in creation and history are ultimately from Him. And not only that, but the salvation that He's accomplished for His people that is at the center of history is through Him. Through His own strong arm, He saved us. It doesn't just come from Him as an outside source, but providentially, He Himself accomplishes it. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Through all of eternity, we will see God as the center of this story because he is the independent one. Because he is the creator and we are the creatures. But not only does this give us a God-centered view of creation and history, this gives us a God-centered view of his decree and his eternal counsel. Turn me, with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And before we read this, I want you to pay attention to the, the fact that God is the subject of of all of these verbs. We are the object. God is the subject. It is God that is acting in this text. Starting in uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is exulting in who God is history as God uniting all things in Christ, Christ, the the son of God, stepping into human history, born of a virgin, living sinlessly, dying vicariously, rising victoriously and ascending triumphantly is the center of all of history to Paul. What God has accomplished through Christ is the center of this story. But notice how it flows from before history even begins. So the self-existence of God or the independence of God works its way out into God's decree, which encapsulates everything that happens in human history. Before the foundation of the world, the father chose to give a people to his son in love. This son says, I will go from all eternity. I will go and I will rescue them. And because of that, it will redound to his glory for all of eternity. But look at these verbs. Verse 4, he chose. Verse 5, he predestined. Verse 6, he has blessed. Verse 8, his riches, which he lavished. Verse 9, his will, his purpose, which he set forth. Notice how he is the source of all of these things. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like what we just read from the Second London Confession. He makes his own glory known to and by and through the creatures. He doesn't receive anything from us. Rather, he lavishes all of his goodness on us as created beings, fallen beings, and now redeemed beings in his Son. So, ultimately, God's independence means... That he did not create us or redeem us to fill some lack in himself. He has come to us and he's redeemed us in Christ to cause his own infinite fountain of glory, goodness, and blessedness to overflow onto his creation. That's why God has done what he's done in the way that he's done it. It's because of who he is. And that's what we're going to see throughout this series God's actions in history and the way that God reveals himself is ultimately leading us up and into who he is in and of himself. What God reveals about himself in creation and in redemption is true, even though it's partial and we can't stare into the full glory of God as Moses desired. What he reveals about himself by creating us and redeeming us is true revelation of himself. And we truly come to know him through it. And no more, or nowhere is that more clear than in the coming of his son and all that has been accomplished in Christ for us. So that's what I want us to see about our God today, that he ultimately is not like us. We are frail. We are weak. Our knowledge is limited because it's dependent. Our power is limited because it's dependent on all sorts of things outside of ourselves. God is unbounded in all of his attributes because he himself is the source of all of them. He doesn't need us, but he's been pleased to make himself known to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just uh, we delight in who you are for us. We delight in who you are for us and your Son. We thank you for sending your son into this world to redeem us. We thank you that we can have a right relationship with you and to know you as you are because of him. I pray that we would uh, delight in Christ more as a people together. I pray that we would treasure Christ more. I pray that we would be more obedient to him, as the, scri- as the scripture reading today said, that we would count the cost of what it means to be disciples of Jesus that out of true faith and out of true trust and a converted heart and a regenerate soul, we would truly love him above anything else and we would consider him to be more precious to us than even our closest family. I pray that you would work these things in our hearts. I pray that we would stand in awe of your majesty together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, made mention that his one great desire was to know God. This God that we've heard about, I want to know Him. And by that, he doesn't have just the idea of information in the head, but he's talking about a relationship with this God. How can we as creatures ever have a relationship with such a great God? And the wonderful thing is God's provided a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can say we know Him. We have a relationship with Him. And so I trust that that you might know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. In closing, let's take the hymns of grace. Hymns of grace. Number five. How great Thou art. Number five in the hymns of grace. Let's stand as we sing. God we have having lunch and then an afternoon service around the Lord's table. You are dismissed.